word why. What a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. The key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. Well, uh, let's take a deep dive. Uh, for those that have been following my podcast and, and writings recently, you know that AI is incredibly topical for all of us. Uh, I've been trying to dive in and learn as much as I can and try to understand the application of it. And we'll talk a little bit about some of my work in higher education and the conversations around AI. And with that being said, I thought, if we're going to take a dive, let's take a deep, deep dive um, with an incredible uh, professional in the space coming from MIT Sloan School of Management. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Jason Jay. Uh, he's a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan School of Management and the director of the Sustainability Initiative. He teaches courses on leadership, strategy, and innovation for sustainable business and engages students in hands-on projects with leading companies. His research focuses on how people navigate tensions in the quest for sustainability, and his work has been published in various academic journals. He's got a PhD in organization studies from MIT Sloan School of Management, an AB holder in psychology, and a master's in education from Harvard. You're a busy guy, Dr. Jay. Yeah. Yeah, having fun. <laughs> yeah, you're having fun and you're smiling for those that are just listening. You can't see in. Uh, look, AI, let me give you a, a little bit of a backdrop. So when I guest lecture, the topic of AI comes up and especially in business schools where you have these, you know, these budding professionals who are whispering in the corners of a lecture hall, wondering if AI is going to circumvent what their career path was, you know, path that they had yeah. sort of laid out for themselves. And so I get the sense that, you know, in public circles, it's fun to talk about AI, but in those corner, the corners of our minds where we don't typically share potentially our, our vulnerabilities, we're a little bit nervous uh, mm -hmm. about what is out there, especially if we start to dive into those that are researching the topic and understanding that it's not a matter of if it's already, it's in our our ecosystem as we speak. And I don't know mm -hmm. if people really understand um, how deep we already in we are into AI. So tell me about AI for you and its connection to sustainability. Well, the, you know, initially, I just am kind of a tech enthusiast, like I was I grew up kind of a computer nerd. And, um, you know, it, 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 I've always had an, a, a, a sense of affinity to MIT. Um, even as an undergrad, I spent a lot of time here and then, um, you know, I've been, have been teaching here for the last, uh, 13 years. And, um, and so when new tech comes up, I generally want to like get my hands on it, or at least talk to people who have their hands on it and understand what's going on. So, um, and, and I had actually created an internet startup back in 19, uh, in the, in 2000, um, in uh, in San Francisco, that was trying to use machine learning to support um, education. So I was familiar with, and I had worked at the Santa Fe Institute. So I was sort of familiar with some of the underlying technologies behind AI, uh, behind what the things, the, the package of things that we call AI right now. Um, and so, you know, I just had like a kind of general curiosity um, with 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 the with the space. But I'm not a computer scientist, and um, 
uh, and I'm an organizational behavior person. Um, so, and, and, and focus on sustainability. So, um, so the place where it really came to be meaningful to me, um, and it was in teaching, um, because I was, you know, following the tools and I was kind of trying to use the tools to support research and writing and was getting frustrated a lot because of all the hallucination. Like, you know, I'd say, you know, come up with, um, you know, I was writing a, an article about sustainability goal setting by companies. And I said, you know, to GPT uh, 3.5, I think it was, or four, um, you know, give me five examples of where companies have set sustainability goals and then had to back off of them uh, because they ran into troubles. And it gave me like all these phenomenal examples that were super interesting and rich, you know, McDonald's trying to source deforestation free soy and then bumping into like not finding enough supply and having to back off. And then I would go to Google and try to find like what would get more texture on the examples and would find that like it didn't it had never actually happened. So then I'd go back to GPT and say, hey, give me some sources for where you came up with this. And it would give me the names and art uh, authors of different articles with URLs and all made up. All the URLs were dead. All of um, them. All of them. And so, and like there were zero useful examples that came out of that, that exercise. So that sort of, I, that was like a really striking to me. And I said, wow, this, this is clearly not a search engine. Um, this is a different kind of thing. This is a make plausible text generator, um, not a make truth generator. Um, so I need to understand this stuff better. And, um, and I also need to like understand what would it mean for our students to be using this stuff? Because I was getting ready to teach a spring semester course last January and and um, and realizing, you know, our students might use this stuff to write, but is that a good idea? And so I started looking around for guidance on this in my role as a teacher. Um, and I found something really cool, which is that my PhD office mate, um, Ethan Mollick, who teaches at the Wharton School and is an entrepreneurship professor there, has sort of thrown himself into the sort of richest understanding of generative AI and its implications for entrepreneurship and teaching in a business school um, and education more generally, because his wife is an educator um, of anyone that I've run into. So following Ethan's um, Substack and feeds has, has been how I've gained whatever knowledge I have about the space. <laughs> Um, and so, um, so I started just, I, now I have like a little program that runs in my head called what would Ethan do? Um, so when I was writing the, the syllabus for our spring course, it was what would Ethan do? It was like, oh, well, we should probably have a policy for the students about how to use AI in the course. And so it turned out he'd written a policy. And so I cribbed his and edited it and refined it and used it, you know, for our purposes. Um, and that was great. And then um, and then when I was developing my fall course uh, last summer, um, I was I was planning a first session where I was going to get the students reflecting on their career paths. The course is called Innovating for Impact. And I was going to get students reflecting on their career paths and how they could uh, find careers of meaning and impact um, and had a framework for them to go read this Ikigai framework. And so I was about to have an assignment where they go read it and then they come into class to discuss it. And then I had my little program ran, which was like, what would Ethan do? Um, and so instead, what I did was engineered a prompt um, kind of iteratively with GPT-4 that turns GPT-4 into an impact-focused career coach and made the assignment for the students go um, 
do a 30 minute coaching session with the with GPT-4 after you've given it this prompt and then bring the transcript into class and we'll discuss the transcript in class. Um, so learn the framework by using it with a coach, uh, you know, virtual coach, because I I realized that, you know, coaching was an activity that doesn't require a lot of sort of accurate factual knowledge the way my initial task about give me some examples of corporate sustainability mishaps did. It was it's more just like, can it engage you in a conversation? And it was really clear from just running it on myself that it was going to work well. And then, um, you know, I deployed it in class and students. Uh, it was super interesting what happened uh, as a result. What was the response from the students? Well, um, interestingly, so there was kind of a range. So first of all, I mean, I did some polling in class just to sort of temperature check on, um, you know, what, you know, what, what did people think of the exercise? And, um, you know, the results of that were basically, you know, like, the, the, you know, it was, it was it was it was reasonably strong agreement that this was a useful exercise, it advanced their thinking about their own uh, journey, um, their own career journey, and it advanced their understanding of what AI was capable of and not capable of. Um, and that it increased, I mean, and they said that they, they strongly agreed that they, it made them more likely to use AI for other stuff in the future because they sort of saw, okay, here was at least one useful use case. Um, but then there were particular insights um, that folks gained, um, you know, like noticing that, you know, they, you know, that noticing that they had personal passions for um, in the creative arts or in narratives, and they hadn't brought that into their professional life. So they, so it would, it would sort of coach them on thinking about, okay, I see that you're interested in educational technology, but if you thought about creative narrative media for doing that educational technology in a more entertaining and, and engaging kind of way. Um, and so it was helping people sort of put the, connect the dots together. And, and in some ways, that's what's cool about the Ikigai framework more, more generally. But, um, you know, this sort of took people through a process that made it, you know, more useful than just reading it in a book. So help me understand this, Dr. J. So I think that the general public, if we sort of step outside of higher education or maybe within higher education, when we think about AI, we rudimentally, we think about like the answer, like it's going to provide an answer. Yeah. But what you just described was sort of the inversion of that. I mean, this was about process. Yes. And yeah, I, that is something that I don't hear about. I don't read a lot about when we think about what AI is doing. We see AI now being applied in the military. Like it's all about the end product and the answers. And it, I think it creates this sort of combustible experience for, for an individual that says, wait a minute, I thought it was about the pursuit of, right, of some goal, mm -hmm. right, to secure the answers that would help me sort of march along my path. Uh, but if we live in a world that the answers are potentially there, now where does that leave me? And, and do I go through a different door? So talk with me a little bit about that sort of inversion that we're not, you weren't looking, they weren't looking for answers. This is about processes, what I'm yeah. hearing. And that's fascinating to me. Well, I, 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 that was, that was how I wanted to encourage them to use it because I think that's healthier. Like, yeah. I, you know, I think it's, um, I, I think the, the fundamental question of the moment is, 
you know, on on all these ta- on all these sort of studies that have tried to look at, you know, what's more effective, the human or the AI, or the human working with the AI, the cyborg, right? And it, you know, as a stylized fact, the cyborg always wins, right? It's the it's the it's the augmented human, it's the AI augmented human that outperforms on all the tasks. And so, so the, the real question for education is how do we train better cyborgs? Um, and, and I think that the, the question about, you know, well, how do, um, how can I enhance my own capabilities with this tool set? Um, you know, some of that is going to be about like automating away boring tasks that I don't want to do. There's going to be some of that. Um, and so that I can focus attention on things that I care about. Um, there's going to be some of, you know, how can I use this? And, and this is kind of what I'm, I'm really interested in. This is this coaching phenomenon, which is how can I use a dialogue with the AI to help me clarify and sharpen my own thinking um, and clarify my own priorities, clarify my own um, objectives and clarify my theory of action, my theory of change, the connection between the actions I'm taking and the objectives I'm trying to reach. And a good coach, that's what a good coach will do is that they'll take you through that process. And, you know, is a human coach, this, and this is actually an area where a human coach might be superior to an AI coach, it probably is. But there's a scalability problem, which is that you know, not everybody can afford an hour-long session with an executive coach or professional coach. So if we could scale access to something that I think that's an interesting use case. And um the other the other thing is, you know, creative processes, creative processes that where um, you know, some descriptions of the creative processes are all about like divergence and convergence, right? It's like you make a whole bunch of stuff and then you down select the good stuff. And that's how creativity works, right? The most, you know, the people who produce the best work in any field are often just the people who produce the most work. <laughs> and then the best of that stuff is the best. Um, and, and that's true of Beethoven. It's true. I mean, there's, there's some really interesting studies of creativity on this. And so what generative AI is really good at is generating a lot of ideas really fast. And then the human can help to converge and synthesize and recombine and refine based on what it comes up with. And that joint creative process can be really good. I, I've been involved in naming um, a couple of products and groups and initiatives recently. And um, I always just, when I'm in a brainstorming conversation, I just always have GPT-4 there ready so that I can say like, okay, you know, we're, t- we're thinking about it in this way, generate 15 names that you know, seem like they label, they catch this. And then I'll paste those 15 things into the mirror board where we're brainstorming. And then we'll say, okay, well, there's a cool, there's a cool metaphor in there um, that I really like. Um, so then you can go back and say, hey, could you elaborate more? Give me another 20 ideas that riff off of that metaphor. And then the human might end up coming up with the final version of it. Um, but but it but the process has been supported and enabled. With this conversation with a, with a, with the gender, are, are you are you personally losing an experience? So I just want to sort of yeah. hone in on what you just talked about because that's incredibly fascinating. That in that moment, you can ask it to generate 10, 15, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, are you then 
are you circumventing your own sort of human experience of sort of that joy that you have when an idea emerges for you out of sort of the thin, you know, blue air where, where, sky where you're saying, wait a minute, you just turned a corner. You just had lunch with somebody. And, uh, you thought about some, you know, their background, Ethan, what would he do? And, you know, Alakazam, you've come up with something that you hadn't even thought about at breakfast that day. That sort of human experience where it's just, you know, you, you've had that moment. Everybody has those and whatever they're passionate about. How does this change that for you? Um. Well, I'm I not it it, ha, it doesn't yet. Okay. Um, I mean, underscore yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the sense that, like, if I'm enlist, ah, let's see, if I'm enlist, I'm probably at a a point in my own journey here where if I'm enlisting the AI to help with something, it's partly because I don't want to have to invest that much of my time and energy in it like you know it's it's not like the primary thing that i most care about creating it's like it's like oh you know what i've got to come up with a name for this thing let's you know like and and i've i've been i've lost weeks of my life trying to come up with a title <laughs> for our book right. or a name for our company and like that had nothing to do with actually writing the book or trying to build the company and so, um, so I've learned that naming processes are a good thing to engage the AI on, right? Um, now, now, could you wake up in the middle of the night and have the, the perfect name come to your mind? Absolutely. Um, but I think that's actually made more likely by having surfed a fuller terrain of possible ideas that the that the AI helped to generate. So, um, so I'm not. I, I, I don't know. It's an interesting question. Headroom is produced by Old Soul, a one-stop marketing agency that understands the power of brand and nuance. Reach out to my guy, Matt, at Old Soul and supercharge your brand and content strategy. That's Old Soul. Shoot Matt a note at aoldsoul.com. That's A-O-L-D-S-O-U-L.com. And now, back to our guest. Does it change where you put the, the, the where, where you um, point the, the meter for importance, meaning is it, and as you bring to the the challenge or the opportunity, the task at hand, the same skill set that you had yesterday, but you may be on a different floor in the building at, because of the technology, because of sort of what is available to you. It doesn't mean that you've changed or that you will not experience the joy of synthesizing information, mm -hmm. but you're, it's a different time. It's a different era in that way. We're just, it, it, this is just going at light speed. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I'm not there yet. Like I'm not in that era yet. Like I, and I know I, cause I kind of, again, from following Ethan, I know what it looks like when you are, I mean, Ethan doesn't know uh, programming languages, but he has in the experiments that he's run and, and written about, like he's generated whole functioning pieces of software. Um, using code generator plugins for GPT and, and then like accelerated and automated parts of his work. And I, I'm not there yet. I actually haven't, there, there's a whole suite of capabilities of AI with respect to code generation, data analysis, some of the things that happen when you start creating plugins and augmentations that I haven't even played with. I'm, I'm really just talking about 
the simple conversational interface to GPT-4 and trying to make sense of that product and make sense of that interface. And I haven't even caught up to the fact that now you can interface with it using images and voice, um, which you know I think is going to be a whole other thing. Then I will say that the next use case that I'm most excited to experience, which I haven't gotten to use, see yet, is um, Microsoft Teams is going to have real-time generative AI component to it. So it will be able to, I've sort of heard this through the grapevine, um, it's supposed to be able to do things like give you real-time feedback about how much airtime you're taking up in the conversation or how many times you interrupted women or, um, you know, as well as the, um, the sort of summarizing capability, which is starting to be, you know, you know, summarizing action items from the meeting kind of thing, which is starting to become more ubiquitous and I think is even built into Zoom now. Um, so I, I think the idea of like a human dynamics co-pilot um, is really interesting because that's, you know, so far the stuff I've seen is like augmentations to individual intelligence and individual creativity um, and individual reflection. Um, and then you can choose to bring your cyborg self into a group. But I think that what, what that concept does, the team's concept does is, is the collective side, is the collective intelligence. Like could you enhance the collective like we know that conversational turn-taking, Tom Malone is a colleague of mine here at Sloan who studies collective intelligence, like the ability of groups of people to do complex creative tasks. And one finding of that research is that conversational turn-taking is one of the key parameters. So you can have a bunch of smart people, but if the conversation is dominated by one mansplainer, then you're going to undermine the ability to, to really utilize it. And if you have a good rhythm of conversational turn-taking, and it turned, it's interesting, I said mansplaining in part because it turns out that the more females you have in a group, the better the conversational turn-taking and therefore the greater collective intelligence. Um, but maybe you could help men be less dumb if they had that feedback, right? Um, so so I think that that's a, I don't know, that's another, that's another frontier that I haven't even gotten to play with yet, but is coming. Dr. J, what sense of responsibility, if you do at all, do you do you feel with regards to the student body um, at MIT and just sort of higher education writ large when thinking about being an explorer? Because you came at it out of just sort of a general interest, right? From uh, this is compelling to me. I want to know how this applies. Um, but it does feel like there's a day coming where higher education is going to have to sit down um, and really think through how this is going to change the way in which we evaluate, the way we assess, the way we look at yeah. capabilities, capacity, you know, scope and scale. I mean, there's just so many things that feels. So how do you feel about your role in that? And do you, with every passing day, feel even, I guess, stronger about your commitment to it because you've just dipped your toe in enough to see what is possible? I, I, I mean, Look, I could, could I think we could collectively end up making a choice that this is all a really bad idea, right? I mean, we we could bump we could bump up against where it's just fundamentally undermining human capability and well being in some way, and then back off. So I and and I and I'm I think that could well happen. So I'm not I don't want to be construed as some sort of like 
starry-eyed techno enthusiast, right? Um, but I think if we we're gonna get ourselves to that point faster if we explore the edges of what it can do and what is what could occur. So um, so I think we have to just go in with our eyes open. And I think the reality is that our students are going to be using it whether we like it or not, and there's no way to detect it. There's all the AI detection tools fail. Um, and in fact, they produce all kinds of bias against people who are, you know, for whom English is a second language and all kinds of other things. So we have to become really, you know, I've already had situations where my, where a student, where I explicitly said in the syllabus, you can use generative AI in your final paper. You just have to be transparent about it and share the transcript along with your final paper. And I've already had a situation where the final paper in my mind was clearly generated by an AI and didn't accredit it. Um, and I had to go back to the student and say, no, this is not okay. You, ha you have to be transparent. You've got to share the transcript. You got to say, this is part of how you did this. And so I think we're all gonna, in the same way that I've had to go after many students for not citing their sources, um, right, properly when they're just pulling from, you know, a book that they read or the web. So there's a set of habits that we have to inculcate and we have to, in a trusting community of educators and students, um, figure out, um, you know, how we do that. I think it, it's going to become, it's going to be the hardest in these arm's length evaluation processes. I'm like, very, you know, admissions processes, for example. Um, but I'm already seeing places where that's changing. I have, my son is applying to private high schools right now. And a couple of the schools have a, as part of the interview, they just sit you down in a room and have you write an essay. And, you know, I, they may, maybe they've had that practice for a long time, but that's a practice that's going to stick and become ubiquitous in the era of generative AI, because you know, for sure that the kid wrote the thing, Right. Um, and so especially, so I think the admissions, again, in a relational process with a professor where there's like, or a teacher where there's a mutual commitment to the person's growth and there's transparency and trust, like, I think you can find your way to a set of practices that are going to be the most constructive. The arm's length processes where it's like, I have every incentive in the world to try to look as good as possible and you don't know me and I don't know you. Um, which is basically what describes a lot of admissions processes. I, that I'm much more worried about. That, that's a great point. I had not thought about that from an admissions perspective. Well, maybe put your dad hat on. Um, my kids are just a little bit younger than yours, at least the one that you, you mentioned there, applying for, for high schools. How do we set up kids to be successful in a world that, I mean, it's still dark. It's like a dark room that we, we know it's there, but we... We're trying to find some ambient light, right, to guide yeah. our, our guide our way. Um, so, how do we support them, and how do we look at the way in which they're learning? I mean, I, you know, look, I, I love story, and so I lean into questions, and I think our young kids can they ask really thoughtful questions? Because it's that old adage, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And so, if we're putting in bad information into AI, what do we expect to get out? And so, it, should we be leaning into? our ability to be curious and ask really thoughtful questions, even at an earlier age, like what are, what are some areas or domains that you think would, you know, not that we have a crystal ball, but would hopefully put kids in a better spot. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I know we have to be careful. Um, I, I, my daughter and I went through a little thing where she was writing this story and um, and I said, you know, hey, look, just for fun, let's like 
you know, let's let's collaborate with the AI to do, you know. And so um, so she kind of did like a little kind of outline and synopsis of the story. And then, you know, the, the GPT generated the story. And um, and then we put it into a Google Doc and said, okay, like now edit this and make this, you know, yours. And um it was an interesting experience. Like it was, it was kind of dizzying for her. She's nine. And it was kind of dizzying because it was like the I, I you know, she's never had to edit a document as long as what it produced. And it was her story, like she had come up with the arc of it, but it wasn't her story, right? And and in a lot of ways, it was it was really poorly written, and you know, and so she, but she, so, so so then she started iterating and saying, okay, wait, I need you to go back and fix this, and so she like in a way, and I was just like so ambivalent about the whole exercise because it was like it, you know, did it take because you know since then since that I, mean, I, I this was a one time experiment so far. Um, since then she's like written other things and she's gotten into the whole sort of creative and then pride of ownership and the pride of creation and everything else. And it's like, wow, you could really undermine that in a bad way. If you gave, if you kind of got them using it too early or in or uncritically. Right. Um, but at the same time, it was just like, th there was, a, it was its own fun activity it was like, how can I, probe this thing and get it to produce something that I think is cool. Um, so I watching that, it was like, you know, I ended up, I mean, I ended up not going any further with that kind of experiment because it was like, I don't want to rob her of the, did it, did it scare you? I mean, I'm just looking at you, I'm not scare maybe, but did it? No, no, it scared me a little. I mean, it, it, it's, it, I, I could feel that I was bumping up against an edge and that edge was an uh, that that I didn't want to be going past where it was going to undermine her. Well, I don't know. It's hard to know what would have happened if we went further in that direction. Like if it would have undermined her motivation, if it would have undermined her writing skills, like what would have it done to you? She already does a lot of dictate. She already, she already does a lot more dictating than typing. Um, and, um, which is, which is a change just from a couple of years ago. Right. Um, and do I care that much about whether we are good typists or not? Yeah, I don't know. Typing was like a way that humans had to adapt to computers. Voice is a way that we're making computers adapt to us. So like maybe I'm, podcasting being, the, you know, maybe the ultimate <laughs> expression of that. Um, so I'm probably more comfortable with that. But does it take you back to when you were nine, though, Dr. J, when you think about I mean, look, you had a series of series of experiences growing up. We're probably of a very similar age. I have a nine year old as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And. And I think, gosh, if I hadn't had those experiences, you know, I know now when I'm curious and I'm going down a rabbit hole, yeah. that started when I was young and I was going yeah. down these rabbit holes. And yet, to your point, coming up against that edge, it's like, wow, how would my life be different if I had been given or afforded sort of these opportunities? Yeah, I, mean, I feel like the, the going down rabbit holes, going down rabbit holes of curiosity, you know, I, I think the web only enhances that by giving you access to all of human knowledge. And I think generative AI is largely not very useful for that because of the hallucination problem um, right now. But isn't that just temporary? It's, it's probably temporary. Um, 
it's probably, but it's, it's, it, um, as it gets better at synthesizing and gathering and gathering information, synthesizing without hallucination, then you won't have to go as deep down the same rabbit hole to learn the thing that you wanted to learn. Um, but we were, we also never had access to all of human knowledge before. So the rabbit hole going was mostly like wandering around the library, looking for a book. Right. So there, I, I don't, I, we're, we're, it's, it's, there's these weird ebbs and flows, I think. I think the creativity part, the creativity rabbit holes is a different thing, right? Is like, I'm going to figure out how to draw a dog, right? In a way that I like the image of the dog. Like that's an iterative skill building process. And if you just say, Dali, draw me, a, make me a dog, um, you've circumvented all of that. And so craftsmanship and the development of those skills and the sense of mastery and accomplishment and the being absorbed in the creation of something, if, you know, our AI is like, you know, if that gets circumvented, then we lose something of our humanity. Um, so not to mention the fact that it drew that by robbing the art of all the other people that it took in the art from to train the model without giving any of them credit or money. So I, I think in that somehow in the visual art space, it feels to me very problematic. Um, but in a way that's less so in the nonfiction writing space. But, uh, you know, ask me again in two years and maybe I'll have a completely different perspective on this. I think we're all, like you said, in a dark room muddling around together. What about the aspect of speed? I think up until this point, it's like I um, I interviewed Hadi Partovi, the founder of Code.org. And Hadi talked about, you know, actually, this is sort of the we're, we're in a period of, of it, it's very slow right now. We feel like it's fast. But we need to put our seatbelts on now because mm. these elements that are, you know, the hallucinations and all these other components of what we're currently experiencing is terribly temporary. And I just wonder about the pace. In essence, as humans, can we take in a totally different experience? Because, if, you know, I think to the average, you know, mom or dad at a soccer game on a Saturday, maybe he's not paying attention to it or it's just not in their, you know, their wheelhouse or what they're exposed to. It feels yeah. like it's way down the road. But yeah, yeah. You know, and and I know just from the people I've talked to that it's not, it, it is here um, and, and it's only getting better during the time that we've even been speaking. Yeah, no, it's exactly. It's moving. It, I mean, humans are not well equipped to deal with exponential processes. Like we... We think linearly. Most of the processes that we evolved to worry about, like, you know, predators chasing us were linear processes, right? Like, we see this all the time where we'll have rooms full. I mean, you know, I work in sustainability. So one of the things that we have to confront is the collision between economic growth and the environment. And so we'll do these inquiries about growth, right? And we'll say, okay, you know, the, the global economy is growing three and a half percent per year. How much bigger will it be in a hundred years? And, you know, even people who are trained in finance and math and everything else, they always guess it's going to, okay, maybe it'll be two, three times bigger. They don't understand that a three and a half percent, you know, rule of 70 means that it's going to double every 20 years. And the first 20 years, it's going to double. And the second 20 years is going to be four X then 8x, then 16x, and in 100 years, it's going to be 32 times bigger than it currently is, which just isn't going to happen with the natural resource constraints. So, so, but that, but we see over and over again how people 
are not wired to think about exponential processes. And the, the AI revolution is not just an exponential process. There's it's 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 a double, it's a double or triple exponential process. It's a set of exponential processes feeding in each other. Because we're going to start using the AI to write code to make the AI, AI better. We're going to use the AI to do engineering to make the chips faster and speed up Moore's law, which is going to create a stronger substrate for the code to be to be executed. I mean, this is the sort of singularity idea that that Ray Kurzweil laid out. You know, in I read the Age of Spiritual Machines like 24 years ago, where he was laying out this idea of the singularity. And I'm not a whatever like sing, I'm not like a devotee or a singularity guy, but I do believe that we are on a trajectory of extremely rapid change, far more rapid than people can possibly wrap their minds around. And I just, I saw it so clearly last year when people were just starting to talk, you know, again, just the arc that I, we've talked about here, like people were just starting to talk about generative AI and then boom, we're at a place where I've got my students like using it as a coach. Um, I never would have imagined that was possible two years ago. And, and now that it you can connect Wolfram Alpha, so it has all the symbolic AI connected to the generative AI, and you can input-output with both images and voice, and you, know, you can write code. And I mean, all of these things are happening so fast, and you know, we have no idea what it's all going to do. Um, how do we? How and, do we... And people, are, people are really slow to uptake. I don't know if you saw Kareem Lakhani, another PhD cohort of mine. Um, uh, he was like a couple years ahead of me, I think, um, who teaches now at Harvard Business School. He's been talking about the knowing doing gap in AI, where you ask an audience, like, how many of you think AI is going to change your job in three years? And everybody raises their hand. And then you ask them, like, how many of you use AI on a weekly or daily basis? And like two people raise their hands. Um, so we all sort of know something is happening. But none of us are adjusting ourselves fast enough to actually make use of these capabilities or even understand what these are going to mean. And I love that because it speaks to a lack of uh, like a sense of control of agency that I have some role or impact and whether or not that's going to impact my job. And I, what I wanted to ask was, do we need to be thinking in parallel with how we're developing all this technology? do we need to be thinking about the mental health aspects and the way in which we think about everything from, gosh, what a human can deliver, um, whether it's in the classroom from, you know, number of assignment, just the number of the workload that we can take on if we are integrating in AI into our, into our world. You know, if AI could handle my email, my mental health would massively improve. <laughs> Um, well put, <laughs> uh, if AI, an AI coach can help me find a purposeful career that's lucrative and that is the best application of my talents, then my mental health could improve. Um, if, um, if I can engage in a creative process in collaboration with an AI co-pilot and produce more and more beautiful things than I could have otherwise, and I feel a sense of ownership over that process, then my, my mental health might improve. Um, but those are all like cherry-picked 
positive possibilities, right? It's it's also, um, you know, could I watch as my job is eliminated and I find myself scrambling to find work? Um, you know, could I try to understand what's going on in the world in Israel and Gaza and be so flooded with fake news generated by AI that I can't even make sense of things and I'm confused and perplexed and terrified? Um, can you know? Then I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be in a world crushing depression. So, um, yes, is the answer. Well, I, I look. We, we could we could go on and on. Um, I I appreciate your thoughtfulness. I think we need to be asking these questions, and you know, I am encouraged to know that there are professors and institutions of higher learning that are asking these thoughtful questions, whether or not they have to or not, you're asking them, you're incorporating them in with the learning process. And I think we're the better for that. We want to thank Dr. Jason Jay. He's a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan School of Management and the director of the Sustainability Initiative. Uh, good luck, Explorer Jay, is what I would say. Uh, safe travels around the AI universe. Thank you very much. I'm your host, Dr. Mean. Rod Berger. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom.